Welcome to this week's episode of the Voice and Sport podcast sponsored by Champs Sports. Today, we are so honored to be joined by Allie Riley, a changemaker both on and off the soccer field. Allie played Division I soccer at Stanford University, and it was during her college years that her international career first began to take off. Since then, Allie has represented New Zealand in four Olympic Games, and most recently, Allie has just wrapped up her fifth World Cup, where she led the New Zealand national team to their first ever World Cup victory. She also serves as a captain of the Football Ferns, the New Zealand national soccer team. In her professional career, Allie has gathered a host of experiences playing both in the United States and around the world, and she currently is the captain of the mighty Angel City FC in the NWSL. Along with her many accomplishments on the field, she is a force off the field. Allie has proven herself to be an advocate not only for women in sport, but also for marginalized people everywhere. Simply put, Allie Riley is an incredible athlete, human, and role model for any young girl out there, and we're so excited for her to be joining us today. In today's episode, Allie walks us through the highs and lows of her soccer career, from what it was like to be cut from club teams as a kid, to what New Zealand's historic win meant to her at this year's Women's World Cup. To get that win was not just about the soccer and getting a three points at a World Cup. It was so much more about legacy and honor and celebration and the future. And Ali shares how her role as a leader transcends the soccer field as she uses her voice and her platform as professional athlete in her advocacy work. As a white passing straight woman who has had a lot of privilege, I am safe when I say things. I have this platform and I've worked really hard to get this platform and if I have it, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to make an impact? And she leaves us with a bit of hope for the future of women's sports. It is still getting better and I'm going to make sure that it is better and I know my colleagues feel the same way. We're doing whatever it takes to make sure that there are better opportunities in the future especially for young people and young girls. Before we get started, if you love this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to sign up and join our community at voiceandsport.com if you are a young woman in sport today. Allie, welcome to the Voice and Sport podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about all things Yes. And coming off the World Cup, it's such an incredible moment to catch you. I know you just got back to the United States after being in New Zealand for several weeks, but we're going to start all the way back in the beginning of your career. You were born and raised in Los Angeles. So what was the first moment or memory that you have of playing soccer? And when did you fall in love with the game? My earliest memories of soccer, I must have been four And my dad took me down to the local high school where they had YMCA teams. It was co-ed and he started out as my assistant coach, but ended up coaching me in some form up until I think I was 14 when I made my first club team. But my earliest memories were just going down with my dad. My mom wasn't really into it because she came to a game and I just sat on the grass and she was like, I don't think I need to be here to watch. But my dad was so into it. I loved having that be the thing that we did together. And also it was just how I networked, how I made friends. I'm an only child, so it was very, very social. And I loved the camaraderie aspect. And that's lasted until now, of course. But I just remember having fun. I do remember picking flowers, but 
I think that was why I liked it. It was just fun and relaxed. And that's how I made a lot of my friends. That's amazing. And did you play other sports growing up? And what point did you say, hey, soccer is the one I'm going to dedicate my training to and go all in on soccer? When was that moment for you? My parents are big runners, tennis players. Now, of course, they play paddle and pickle. So I started playing tennis really young. I was running. So I did tennis and track in high school. At that young age, I was also doing gymnastics. I played basketball, softball, was on the swim team in middle school. So I kind of tried it all. Volleyball, of course, I was very short for some of these sports. So I loved soccer. I loved anything where I was on a team. So track I did in high school, but it just wasn't the same. Same with tennis. It was a lot of pressure. I felt a little bit more alone. So I think I really started dedicating most of my time to soccer probably not until eighth or ninth grade. And I didn't make my first club team until I was in seventh grade, I think. So I was a very late bloomer. I tried out for the team, didn't make it for two years. I definitely didn't feel serious about it or know that I had any future in it until much later. Wow. Well, let's go back to that moment and talk about what happened and how you felt when you didn't make those teams. I mean, do you remember those moments of saying to yourself, maybe that you weren't going to keep going? Do you ever think about quitting? That happens to a lot of us. We miss teams or we don't make the teams we're on, but you did go on to go to five World Cup teams. So clearly you were good, but yeah, bring us back to that moment. And what advice would you have to other girls out there that might not make the team earlier on in their career? I was really lucky. My dad has been my number one supporter for my entire life. And so when I didn't make the club team, he was still coaching me in AYSO. And so he just gave me those resources to keep training extra hard. He believed in me, He really hyped me up. And my parents knew that it was something I loved. And so for me, it was always, if it's something you love, keep doing it. And if you do have aspirations to make a club team, work really hard, make sure you do everything in your control to be ready and to try out again. So I think I was disappointed and a little bit as offended, I guess, as like a 12 and 13 year old can really be because almost all of my friends made the team. So that was another thing because it was so social for me that to not make the team, all of my friends now to be playing club on the same team and me to be still in AYSO, but I made new friends. I made the most out of the situation. Again, I was very privileged to have so much support from my parents, but my advice would be just, if it's something you love, there are so many different journeys and so many different paths to take. And so I worked really hard and I still loved it. So I didn't see a reason to stop just because this one coach said I was too small and not strong or physical enough. And so when that same team two years later got a new coach, he saw something in me. And then I was ready for that opportunity because I had still believed in myself and had that confidence and just knew that I wanted to do something that I loved. And I didn't put all of my hopes and dreams into this one idea of how my youth soccer would look like. I think I was ready for the opportunity if it eventually came. And it did. And that coach really did believe in me. And I stayed at that club. And then the next coach I had was the same. He said, if you work hard, you can have a future in this and advised me to go to an even better club. You just have to do everything you can so that if someone does see something in you and then will put their faith in you and trust you that you're ready for that opportunity. 
And to your point, also recognize that maybe it's not that coach or that team that's going to be a good environment for you to succeed in and then make a shift, right? Yeah. And again, with sports, and I'm not saying this as an excuse because you have to make sure you are working hard and you're doing your best and you're a good teammate, especially in team sports. But when you don't play or get picked, that is usually one person's opinion. So I think you can't put all of your value in that person's opinion. Now, as I'm older and there's so much media around my games and my teams, and now with the World Cup, again, people are always going to have opinions about your performance. You're going to be written about in the paper and their opinions. You have to be able to look at yourself and say, am I doing my best? That's all I can really ask of myself. Am I working hard? Am I kind? Really looking at your goals and saying, am I doing everything in my control? Then I think it releases some of that pressure and takes some of the weight off of someone who might not understand you or someone else fitting a team better. Or again, sometimes some people are better than you too. I really put the most weight on doing your best. We all make mistakes. So if you just do your best, you can look in the mirror and say, I've done all I can. And what else can you do? This episode is presented by Champs Sports. Step into classic style with the Puma Maze, a sneaker essential for every day of the week. Available in black and white, the Maze is a winning addition to your sport-inspired look. Shop Puma favorites in-store or online at champsports.com. Now, back to the episode. Well, and you mentioned this, and this is something very near and dear to our heart at Voice and Sport, but having incredible role models around you that you can look up to, that support you, and where you feel like you have that unconditional support. They're not always going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm sure your dad wasn't always telling you nice things about your game, but he was always there to support you. And he was one person who really helped you in your journey. So I want to talk a little bit about how your father found really that opportunity for you to eventually dream that you could be on the national team, not for the U.S., but for New Zealand. So you come from parents that have a really unique and diverse background. Your mom is Chinese American, was born in San Diego, and your dad is from New Zealand. So you are a dual citizen, which is really cool and gives you that really unique unique opportunity, but I'd love for you to tell us that story of the first moment in which you realized, wow, I could play at the national level, but for Team New Zealand. (laughs) When did that moment shift or were you always dreaming of Team USA when you were younger? I think when I saw the US play in 99 in the World Cup final, I think almost everyone there, probably man or woman, girl or boy, was like, I want to play for the women's national team. They became our idols. But that became just a dream to be an elite athlete, someone who could play sport on the highest level, play sport in front of thousands of people, to be strong and confident like those women were. You know, we finally saw women on the cover of Sports Illustrated and on the cover of newspapers. So I think that was more the seed that was planted. I didn't know so much about the national team or, you know, they weren't playing professionally, at least in the U.S., because there wasn't a professional league until after that World Cup. But I think I just had a dream of being able to play on the world stage or just do something really awesome with sport. And to see women do that was very, very empowering and very inspirational. But again, didn't see much about the tools, how to do that, media about it. I was only 11. And so when this 
opportunity came about, I had never been called into any U.S. national team camps. So many of my team teammates were. So I never thought of it as a choice or an option to play for the U.S. So it wasn't necessarily a dream that I was working towards. I just never even considered it. They had never considered me. So when my dad had read that New Zealand was investing in a youth national team that hadn't really existed before, the New Zealand women played in the 91 World Cup, the first Women's World Cup. And then the program had gotten a little bit stagnant. They're in the same confederation as Australia. And the Matildas were getting stronger and stronger. And the Matildas were qualifying. So when they started investing, my dad just read something about it and sent an email. The email kind of just went nowhere. It was just out there in the abyss. And then finally, when a coach was named to be the under 20 head coach, he was looking back through emails that had just been sent to whatever email address this was and saw, oh, my daughter's a dual citizen and maybe could be someone that could play for the team or could contribute in some way. And then they said, yeah, send something over. I think it was a DVD we sent with some highlights, the same way you got noticed in college too at the time. And they invited me to come over and essentially try out. So I flew to Australia, was there for two weeks, and then got invited to be on the team and play in the Under-20 World Cup in 2006. And that was my senior year of high school. But I still never saw it as being a career or a future because the New Zealand players weren't playing professionally. There was a bunch in college. Again, this was the under-20s. At this point, the league had folded in the U.S. And there was no visibility with the leagues going on in Italy, Germany, even England, Sweden. I didn't know anything about those leagues, those countries. I didn't know anything about Champions League. So I just thought I would go to Stanford, play Division One. That's also an incredible opportunity and achievement and then get a job, a real job. My mom wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer. Back to your question, I didn't know that I would play for a national team or at a World Cup or be a professional soccer player until those things actually happen to me. And what makes me so happy now is that it's so different for little girls. They're growing up watching the NWSL, watching the WSL, watching the A-League in Australia, thinking I can be a women's professional soccer player. And I'm so happy that the landscape is so different now kind of going back and forward, I would love to hear your perspective on what you feel like has changed in terms of the landscape for women's sports between 2007, your first World Cup, and then fast forward to 2023. Oh my gosh, so much time has passed. And for me personally, going to that first World Cup for me in 2007, it was just such an honor to be there. And it was such an insane experience. I think one game we had 60,000 plus people. We were playing China. So we were playing the host nation. And I think 59 plus thousand of those people were obviously cheering for China, but we had a good Kiwi crew there. But I think at that World Cup, of course, 60,000, there were big numbers at at least the Chinese games. But now, if you look at the attendance numbers across all of the games right now, still going on in Australia and New Zealand, setting records, 
the broadcasting, the viewership, setting records. And especially with this agreement, we've just come to thanks a lot to FIFA Pro and the voice of players around the world. The prize money has increased so much. I'm not even sure if there was prize money. There wasn't any prize money until 2007. That was the first year that there was prize money for the women in the Women's World Cup. Yeah, I'm not sure if we got any for qualifying. So that's one thing. Of course, we still have a ways to go. It was only, I think, 25% of the Men's World Cup prize money, which does not sit well with me, but it is progress. And I think the players themselves being able to play these tournaments and then know that they go back to their professional environments, they have a wage all year round, can call themselves professional players. And again, not everywhere, but it's something that is so different from 2007 and the personal sponsorships that players have as ambassadors, the money that players are able to make, the exposure, it is really, really different. Of course, the disparity between the men's and women's game is still so large. The conditions, the resources available to women, we still have a long ways to go, but I think the women are so empowered and we have this collective voice. And that is something very different than 2007 because we're all connected. Social media, I know can be a very dark place, but I think in women's sports, it's really connected us and it allows us to have this collective and be in touch with each other from all of these different countries to work together with something like FIF Pro. Now having Voice in Sport, Just Women's Sports together, you have organizations that are doing so much for women that I just think our platform is so big now and it's really hard to ignore us. And you still have many people, probably millions of people, millions of men who still don't think that women's sport or women in general are worth investing in, that people don't care about women's sports, but the numbers don't lie. And with social media, I think we're able to get those statistics out there and we're able to have a fan base and you're able to show highlights and have proof in numbers that people do care about women's sports. And that's not something we really could do in 2007. So it gives me hope. It makes me optimistic that I don't think it will be soon, but one day we could get there and see parity, see equity. Well, it's amazing to see that you've had the longevity in your career, that you've been at so many World Cups. And this World Cup was a huge milestone for you guys as well as a team for New Zealand because you had your first ever win with a 1-0 victory over Norway. So congratulations. It's a huge accomplishment and it must feel really amazing after going to five World Cups and then not feeling that win because you all want to feel it. You know, you're happy to be there, but you still want to feel the win. So what was that like? Walk us through your experience in Auckland this year and what it meant for you to be in your home country with the New Zealand team and then win your first game. It was so awesome. Like you said, we've been waiting, working for that win for so many years. And not just me, this was my fifth World Cup, but the players who were in 91, the players who tried but didn't qualify for the next World Cups, we've all been just hoping and dreaming of this moment and to see how much it meant for the former New Zealand players and just to be able to honor their legacy and their fight when they didn't get any money, any support, any recognition for what they had done in this kind of growth of the game 
what they had done for their country representing New Zealand. We wanted to win to honor them. And you know, it's a lot of pressure. And then we wanted to inspire the next generation as well. And New Zealand isn't a football or soccer nation. It's, you know, rugby and netball. Soccer is just, it's the global sport. And I know what it's given to me. And especially with the opportunities there are for women's soccer now, I want little girls to open a door for them. If you dream and work hard, you could play in so many different countries now. It's not even just about playing for your national team. It's being able to do something you love. And again, even if you don't make it professionally or internationally, sport teaches us so much and gives us so much. So to be able to open little girls' eyes to another sport that they might love and teach them leadership and resilience and teamwork, we really wanted that. And so to get that win was not just about the soccer and getting a three points at a World Cup. It was so much more about legacy and honor and celebration and the future. So again, that was a lot that we were holding and wanting to achieve. So when it happened, and again, we didn't get out of the group. So we felt like really disappointed we couldn't do more and that maybe we let people down. But the messages we've received and the stories about little girls picking up a soccer ball, girls who had quit and now are going back or just feeling really inspired, not about soccer, but about something else in their life. It was really, really special. And it makes me really proud. And it gave me a lot of perspective into why we do this and the heartbreak and the challenge and everything. It felt like it was all worth it. That's amazing. Well, playing on your home soil in front of 42,000 fans that showed up, it was a record for both the women's and men's soccer in New Zealand. So pretty incredible opportunity. And for you, it wasn't just about the game. Like you said, after you won that game, it was more about inspiring the girls and what you were doing for the country. But you also had other things that you were really trying to advocate for in that moment. And you actually, I think, broke the internet or almost broke the internet when you <laughs> displayed your rainbow colored nails at the World Cup to show allyship with the LGBTQ plus community. Why did you feel like it was really important to stand up and fight for inclusion in these moments, regardless of FIFA's policies against showing solidarity? I didn't really realize how big the impact was because I wasn't paying too much attention to social media. And then when I got back here and also the media in New Zealand is different to the media here. And so when I got back, people were saying that it got so much attention and some of the younger girls on the team were like showing me TikToks and stuff. But it felt like such an important opportunity. I have this platform and I've worked really hard to get this platform. And if I have it, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to make an impact? How am I going to help people? How am I going to show support? And, you know, there's two sides to having a platform and building your brand. And one, of course, the side is to make money. We don't make the same type of money in the women's game as the men do. We also make less money than we would make as very educated, unbelievably talented and intelligent, creative women. We don't make as much money playing soccer as we would if we were doing something else, which is so crazy that your economic value and opportunities goes up when you stop playing professional sports, which is in so stark contrast to the men. So that's one side of it. But for something like this, it was like, 
The LGBTQ plus community is so important to me. You can't do anything without LGBTQ plus humans. And especially, you know, my friends who feel like family are part of the community. And just the more I've educated myself and been educated about my rights and my privilege, I just thought, how can I not do something to celebrate, support, give some visibility to a community that is so important to me. So again, it was very closely tied into the armband situation and FIFA, as I think many players had seen with the Men's World Cup and the One Love armband. And we all thought, well, for the Women's World Cup in New Zealand and Australia, of course, we will be able to celebrate pride and show how important inclusion is to us. And so when that didn't really go as planned and FIFA rolled out this kind of campaign with the armbands with such important values like education for all, supporting indigenous peoples, peace and joy and gender equity. These are all things that I also stand for and want to promote. But I just felt like, especially sport, which has given me so much. And I know that there are so many people who don't feel like they belong or welcome in sport, that this was a time to really shine a spotlight on the LGBTQ plus community. And the most simple way was just to paint my nails. And I, of course, I have to mention there are other players on my team who had rainbows on their nails. But I, again, had this opportunity to speak after the game. I have this platform. I got this media attention. And, you know, I, I don't need the attention. It was not for me. But I'm so glad that so many people saw it. The messages I've received is I felt seen. I felt valued. You gave me hope. And so, again, it puts a lot into perspective. And winning that game was, again, so much bigger than me or soccer. You kind of nodded at this, but sometimes as athletes, you have the platform and then you feel the pressure to use it. And there's a lot of athletes that don't want to speak up on certain issues. And so as athletes that are building their brand, because as you said, especially for women athletes, it's important to build your brand. Then you get the dollars coming in from sponsors and that sponsorship, it's your revenue, right? It's your income. So it's important to do that. But I'm really curious what advice you have to the girls out there, the women athletes out there, especially in the US and the college scene now with NIL, where they're all trying to make the money and they're trying to build their brand. And so a lot of them now have platforms. Do you feel like it is a responsibility for athletes to use their platform to drive social change or an option? How should they think about that? That's a really good question. And of course, it's kind of a new question with these opportunities that we're getting. And as a collegiate athlete, it would be hard to navigate these things. Even when I started doing some paid posts, I didn't think to look at the history, the founders, what the company stood for. So one kind of advice or what first comes to mind is just be really authentic. And I think people know if you're advocating for something and it doesn't feel authentic, people probably won't believe you. And then you might get some money for these posts, but the brand also might not feel that kind of connection and want to continue working with you. And so, again, I totally respect anyone who needs to do posts to make money, but I do think that long-term you can be more successful if it is something you genuinely use or enjoy. But I do think that if you can, doing your 
research or having someone help you with that to make sure you're not getting involved with a company that maybe doesn't share your same values. And then I think on the responsibility part, the only responsibility that I feel as an older player is to do what I can to leave the game in a better place so the future generations can have more opportunities than I had. That doesn't necessarily mean posting or getting sponsors. But what I will say in terms of advocacy is that it's strong and it is important. And I think it helps people when you can advocate for groups that you don't belong to, because that's often what communities need. And for me as a white passing straight woman who has had a lot of privilege, I am safe when I say things. I am safe. I have the backing of this club that shares my values. I'm very lucky. I'm very, very privileged. So for me, I would never expect my teammates who are part of the LGBTQ plus community to show their pride externally the way that I chose to. If they want to, great, but they shouldn't have to. I am safe. It's the same with Black Lives Matter. I think, you know, we have a seat at the table. Again, women, I think we're all kind of fighting this fight, but white women have more of a voice, get more sponsorship opportunities than women of color. So again, like we have more seats at the table, not as many as men, but how can you use that? And you don't always realize how powerful that that is because you might not think and understandably about communities that you're not a part of. And I have chosen, of course, to talk about being Chinese and during COVID and racism against Asian people, but that can be really, really scary. And so it's so nice, you know, when my teammates, when it was ANHPI Heritage Night, that they're sharing it and that they're reposting and giving information, I think it is even more powerful. And it just adds to the kind of that, that collective and helps get certain messages out. And I really try to be empathetic and put myself in other people's shoes. And sometimes it's completely impossible. But if you just think, who am I and what do I have to offer? And how can I help someone who maybe wouldn't feel comfortable or safe being an advocate for their own community? Absolutely. You make such a strong point because oftentimes each one of us is in a different position, right? And those positions can really open up a lot of doors for other people. So you always want to have that perspective of what position am I in and what privilege do I have that can maybe help other people. That's really the reason why I started Voice in Sport is I felt like there were not enough diverse voices in sport in the system. That's why it's called Voice in Sport. (laughs) We try to give more visibility to athletes that maybe aren't getting the visibility today or they don't feel like they have as much advocacy efforts around them and behind them. So it's really important to do that for the groups that you don't even belong to or that you don't identify as. And I want to talk a little bit about your heritage because we know that unfortunately during COVID, during the pandemic, we saw a huge rise in the amount of hate crimes towards Asian Americans. In fact, there was a 46% increase according to NPR. And during the NWSL preseason interviews, you talked about inspiring other Asian players and wanting to boost anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander racism awareness. So you've been very forthright about your heritage and really coming from your Chinese American maternal grandparents. Can you tell us a little bit about within the sports industry, specifically in soccer, 
what needs to change out there in the system to help create a more inclusive environment and bring in more diverse women in the sport of soccer? I think if we knew the answers to that, it would probably be happening more. But I know that there are huge efforts because of organizations like yours. But visibility, representation is a huge part of it because there isn't a lot of representation. It's hard to kickstart the next generation of players. You have to change something. One thing that is challenging in certain countries, of course, is how expensive it is to play soccer. I think also with cultural differences, especially Chinese culture, it's not something, you know, even my mom, who is an incredible athlete, was not encouraging me to pursue (laughs) professional soccer as a career. This is very real in my own life. And I don't know And it just is evidence of how there's something in the system and with representation. And again, we touched a little bit earlier on kind of the sponsorship deals, who is getting on TV, who's in commercials, who's on billboards. And I have noticed a bigger effort from companies now to be more diverse, but it still feels a little bit like charity. And it's Mm -hmm. the same just for women's sports in general. But I think Now, it's a little bit about celebration and telling stories too. And I saw that there's a player for Louisville and she's the first Chinese national team player to score a goal in the NWSL. And I wouldn't have known that. But to have that across media channels, I thought this is incredible. To see June Endo being celebrated, this is incredible. And just to have women who look like them be successful and promoted and celebrated, even if they're nationals from another country besides the United States. Little kids aren't thinking through all of those things. They're saying, she looks like me. I could do this. I could dream this. And of course, being Asian American myself and with my mom being this presence that people are able to see and doing interviews and storytelling and media content with her, I think, again, I felt safe enough to talk about my identity. And this only happened in the past few years. This is not something that I was comfortable talking about, had even understood until 2020. So, you know, full transparency, and I've talked about it before, this is not something I wanted to talk about, think about, which I think is how a lot of people feel when you feel different and you're made to feel different. But I just thought, what the heck, I'm going to talk about this and be on this stage and... I'm not expecting anyone else to do that, but if it can help little girls or adults who are like, oh, I am also going to talk to my family about this and be open about it. I'm going to start kind of a community at my workplace. Yeah. I just think again, it's kind of about the collective and it helps feeling like you have a community and for me to share my story along with other employees of Angel City from the street team to the front office, also during ANHPI Heritage Month, they were sharing their stories and it inspired me a lot. I see them and it's like, hey, what's up? I don't know, you feel connected and it makes you feel more safe and just more empowered. Well, you bring up something that we're really passionate about here at Viz, which is at age 14, girls drop out of sport twice the rate of boys. But if you look at Black 
and Asian and Latina girls, they drop out at twice the rate of white suburban girls at that age. So you might see a lot of young girls originally in sport in that younger age, but then there's like a huge drop off and they're dropping off much faster than white young girls. So we have a lot of work to do within the system to keep these young girls in sport and make sure that the diversity continues throughout all of the levels because it starts out generally okay and then it kind of gets worse and worse as you get to the top where in the ncaa only two percent are asian americans which is absolutely crazy and not representative of our country so i think you're right the representation is really huge and that's why we have mentors at this we want girls to see other girls that look like them and then be able to talk to them and learn from them and not feel so alone so my question to you is to all of the young girls out there who feel like they don't see themselves reflected in sport what advice would you have for them so that they don't drop out and they don't feel alone i think that i hope that they feel like things are changing, that sport is changing, that society is changing. And of course, as a young person, you kind of have to take my word for it because you might not be seeing it. But I do think that with leagues, with organizations like Viz, you are seen. And this is a big, big daunting ask, but you can also be the first and you can be the one to help kickstart a change. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not going to give myself too much credit, but I think that we are being heard and seen more than ever before. And again, with more opportunities and more organizations that understand us, that even if one door is closed on you or if one coach or one college or brand doesn't see you for who you are or doesn't make you feel heard, there is another open door somewhere. And I don't know if that was true when I was a young girl, but I'm pretty confident that that is there now. And I'm not trying to have two rose colored glasses and say that's like that in every state and all across the United States. But I do think that there are places and I think seeing just the difference in the league and the women using their platform from now compared to even five years ago, in five years, it will be even better. So even if you're a young person thinking, I'm still not feeling really like this is for me or that anyone will care about me, it is still getting better. And I'm going to make sure that it is better. And I know my colleagues feel the same way, especially the veteran players in the league. And I think if you are looking at the World Cup and just even the equal pay campaign from the U.S. women, we're doing whatever it takes to make sure that there are better opportunities in the future, especially for young people and young girls. But I also think now trying to tune in and watch and listen because there are stories now being told. I think about Crystal Dunn and how open she's been about her experiences. Jasmine Spencer with her business and during ANHPI night, the stories being told, I think you will find that there is someone who you could identify with. It might be small, but there are players now that that will make you feel understood and make you feel like that there is a space for you in sport and that you belong. That is the biggest thing I want. I want you to feel like you belong. 
Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit lastly about your experiences moving around the world, because I'm sure that that shaped a huge huge part of who you are. I mean, you're now playing in the US, in LA, back in your hometown with Angel City FC. And you're coming off of obviously this amazing World Cup win for Team New Zealand. But you had a pretty interesting journey to get to where you are today. And you went to several different clubs. So you played for Chelsea, FC Bayern Munich, FC Rosengard, and Orlando Pride. And maybe I'm missing some in there, but you know, you've had this incredible experience of playing for clubs all around the world. So what has that done for you as a person? And then what has that done for you as a player that you want young girls to be considering as they think about their journey? I think one of the coolest things about the women's soccer world now is that going to these different clubs is a choice. There's opportunities. Again, you look at champions, like there are clubs from all over Europe that are making it at the highest level and part of this tournament that has such high exposure. There's just so many different ways to be a professional women's soccer player now. When I first moved to Europe, it was out of necessity. Of course, it was a choice, but the league folded here. But I went over there and poof, it was a whole different style of play. The players were so technical. Again, with European soccer, football, all of my teammates had grown up watching it. There was a league there for women. The Swedish national team was very successful. There's the Euros that's played alongside the World Cup and the Olympics. A lot of the girls had played with boys, but just football is life. If you go to Europe, it's very different culturally here. Just the style and the understanding of the game, the technical, tactical ability of the players. It was just like a whole new world. I felt very far behind. Of course, I had this American athleticism that is, you know, kind of stereotyped to this country. But I learned so much about how to play. I learned the language. I think when you go to a different culture, it's humbling in a sense that you have to learn another language. You want to learn about culture and traditions and a way of life and no one knows who you are people had like heard of stanford but it wasn't like oh my god you went to stanford it was just like oh cool i don't know the players there they start playing professionally at such a young age they live alone in apartments i'd never lived alone before so it was humbling I learned a lot and then just going to Chelsea and being in England where the media exposure, the coverage, the level again was like another level. And then going to Germany where those are some of the best players in the world. The training was the most challenging emotionally, physically that I've ever gone through. It gives you a lot of appreciation for other teams, other cultures, other leagues, which I think is important. It helped me learn about my game, helped me learn about myself to go there, to not know the language, being alone. You do some soul searching, going to Chelsea, having a really serious injury, being out for months and months and months. That was the first huge challenge of my career. Going to Bayern Munich, barely playing. I learned how to be a good teammate after having had you know so much game time and being a starter and I got a lot of empathy from that and it helped me become a better leader but really I just got an appreciation for the fact that there are so many opportunities now for women for young girls that there is not one path you know I am a Chinese American New Zealander playing for the national team played in Sweden have my Swedish citizenship had this 
such unexpected. You could never, ever predict it. This amazing life and career that it's been hard at times, but it's given me so much. And I think having an open mind is probably the biggest advice I could have just because you don't get drafted or you don't play. And I'm not saying if you don't play, you should suddenly quit your team, but there are opportunities and there are different coaches, different styles, different countries, just so many different doors. So I think going abroad is something that I would encourage people to consider. Just everyone's path is different. You're looking at some of the U.S. national team players who have left college, haven't gone to college. There isn't one right way to live your life, to play sport, to play soccer. To continue listening to this podcast, please go to voiceandsport.com and sign up for free. Head on over to minute number 43 to get started and listen to the rest of the episode. Ali goes on to talk about the power and importance of visibility for women's sports. Even just having the engagement, the visibility that this World Cup has had, you're changing people's lives. Women are feeling empowered by what you're doing because you are following your dream. How we can all inspire each other. If you just are yourself and confident and do something that you love and are passionate about, it's going to make an impression on someone younger than you. And one thing she wants to see changed for the future of women's sports. The biggest thing that's on my mind right now is, of course, getting that official commitment from FIFA that they will match the prize money for the men and women for the next World Cup. We need to get there. And that will change so many lives. That will change sport everywhere. This week's episode was produced and edited by Anna Narayan, Viz creator, and Anya Miller, lead producer of the Voice and Sport podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, Champ Sports, for sponsoring this episode. You can follow Allie on Instagram at Riley3. If you liked our conversation with Allie, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. Please click on the share button in this episode and send it to another athlete that you think might enjoy this conversation. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Voice and Sport. If you're interested in joining our community, sign up for free at voiceandsport.com to get started. When you join the Voice and Sport community, you gain access to our exclusive content and podcasts, mentorship sessions from professional athletes like Allie, and access to the top biz experts in sports psychology and nutrition. For more on Equal Pay and the Women's World Cup, make sure to tune in to last week's episode on the podcast with Becky Sauerbrunn as well as over 100 episodes with the top women athletes and experts from around the world. If you're interested in advocating for equal pay, the Voice and Sport Foundation just launched the Side of Equity Fund to close the pay gap for women athletes everywhere, starting with its first initiative for the athletes participating in this year's Women's World Cup. Head to voiceandsportfoundation.org to donate. See you next week on the Voice and Sport Podcast.